0: For me, this is the beginning of the American adventure. And
1: <laughs>
2: Tomorrow's horizons are here today. We
0: really can bring our dreams to life. It takes a lot of work, but the truth is, if we can dream it, we can do it.
2: Please put loose items in the pouch in front of you
0: and securely buckle seat belts. Attention Horizons passengers. Our travels will be briefly delayed. Please remain seated. And this is my assistant and good right arm, Figment. <laughs> From the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey, this is Jeopardy! Now entering the studio are today's contestants, Imagineer Extraordinaire Marty Sklar, Reference Model Margaret Carey, and finally, Just Lou. And now, here is the host of Jeopardy and the voice of the WDW Radio Podcast, Jonathan Dichter! Thank you Johnny Gilbert, hello contestants, welcome to our program, good luck to you in the game. Here are the categories for the first round of play, WDW Trivia, WDW News, WDW Resorts, The Best of the Best, Voices Behind the Magic, and finally, GAS. Mr. Mongello, since the WDW Radio Show is your podcast, your Walt Disney World information station, and this is your dream, we'll let you make the first selection. WDW Radio.
3: Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in once again to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. This is show number 12 for the week of April 29th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mongello, and on this week's show, I'll discuss some Walt Disney World news and reviews, followed by a quick trip to the Walt Disney World rumor mill. I invite back Jeff Pepper to continue with a look at an extinct Epcot pavilion and attraction as part of our Epcot retrospective series in celebration of the upcoming 25th anniversary of Epcot. This week, we take a detailed look at Horizons, one of the most beloved and missed attractions in Walt Disney World's history. This journey is going to cover the attraction's origin, history, some of the pervasive themes that ran through it, an in-depth trip through the ride itself, fun facts and trivia, the music, when and why it closed, and more. It's going to be a lot of fun and I think you're really going to enjoy that. I also welcome back Pam Forrester to the show as we discuss one of Walt Disney World's best of the best. This time, it's the best character meal experience outside the parks. Finally, I'll answer more of your email and play some of your voicemails, so we have a lot to cover this week, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show.
0: WDW Radio Show News and Views Report. Live from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey.
3: In this week's News and Views from Walt Disney World, we're going to start over in Epcot, where an anonymous cast member has sent me photos of the new post-show area of Spaceship Earth that I'm going to post in the show notes section of the WDW Radio website. Many of you have also emailed me about the post-show and posted in the forums. And someone actually called the voicemail from Disney with his mini spoiler-free trip review that I want to go ahead and play for you now.
1: Hello, Lou and WDW Radio fans. This is get Put on the Show. Um, I'm here. Today is Wednesday, April 26th, I think. I don't really know. Anyways, uh, just opened Project Tomorrow, Inventing the Wonders of the Future uh, today, so I went into that soft opening. Uh, there are only two things up right now, Super, super Driver and Bodybuilder. Both are, uh, very neat, uh, I suggest everyone goes check them out. I'm not gonna say too much, because it's kind of an experience, you have to go on yourself. But, uh, the entire exit to Spaceship Earth has just been, uh, revamped, and it just seems so much different, I guess is the, the best way I could think of to explain it. Um, we was talking to one of the girls who works here And she says that there is more to come I mean, but that's to be expected anyways And it probably will be up At about the same time Spaceship Earth goes down So that they have something to do here still As in, they'll close Spaceship Earth The attraction, but all of the post-show area Will be open if someone wants to walk in Uh Yeah, so hope that helps For anything But uh, it's really cool and I suggest that anyone Who comes down here within the next couple months should Come check it out Thanks for
3: your time. Bye. So while it appears there is more to come for project tomorrow in the post show, what has been completed is open to the public. And so far the reviews have been very, very good in an effort to help guests and especially cast members earlier this week, Walt Disney world matched money from a federal grant program to help the links bus company expand its public bus service, which is going to directly benefit Disney cast members who work some late shifts. Disney contributed $220,000, which is going to allow them to extend the operating hours as late as 12.30 a.m. for bus routes that go through Disney World and over to other points in Orlando. The benefit to Disney cast members is that a lot of these routes are designed specifically with them in mind, as they travel through many of the backstage areas as well as employee entrances to the resort hotels. Now, this is going to allow these buses to run very early in the morning, as well as late in the evening. And they're also going to connect to other places in Orlando from places like the Ticket and Transportation Center and Downtown Disney. So if you are staying off-site or for some reason want to go off-site, you can, as a guest, get these buses from the TTC and Downtown Disney. For those of you that may miss Alfredo's when it closes, it will be moving to another location in the Orlando area, although it has not been specified where as yet. So if you must have their world-famous Fettuccine Alfredo, you will now have to travel off-site. However, I would suggest waiting for the new Patina Group restaurant to see if that can equal or best the Fettuccine Alfredo at Alfredo's. It appears as though something I was going to report on as rumor has recently been confirmed over at Disney, and that is the closing of Spaceship Earth. It appears it's going to close down not once, not twice, but three times over the next few months. Between May 7th and 10th and June 22nd and 23rd, it's going to close down obviously for a brief amount of time. And then going to go down again between July 9th and November 1st, 2007. This is obviously going to be for the most substantial part of the refurb that we talked about on prior shows. The disappointing part of this news is that it is going to be closed during the very busy summer season. That, coupled with the closing of the Haunted Mansion in the Magic Kingdom from June 6th through September 12th, 2007, means that two of Walt Disney World's signature classic attractions are going to be down during the summer. It is... This is, of course, very disappointing to anybody who's going to travel to Walt Disney World during the summer, especially if it has been a long time since your last visit. You now lose two classic attractions, but again, this is a necessary evil if we are to get the upgrades and refurbishments that so many of us have looked for for such a long time. Finally, as it's been a quiet week in the world of Walt Disney World news, there is lots of work going on over at the Contemporary Resort. With the North Wing completely demolished and cleanup pretty much over, work is progressing inside the main tower, as the arcade section of the Food and Fun Center has closed in anticipation of the move to the new Contemporary Games, which is going to be located on the Grand Concourse level. That is going to open for previews on, well, today, April 29th, and the grand opening should be on Monday, April 30th. The new Fantasia gift shop that they are that is currently under construction should open likely around the start of the summer season. Now, while there wasn't much going on in the world of Walt Disney World news, I do have a couple of rumors. And the first one, you know, is going to remain as a rumor until it is officially confirmed by Disney, but it does appear quite likely based on my source, who has let me know that Epcot's Vice President Brad Rex is set to step down and take a new position at the Hilton Hotels Company, possibly in the Grand Vacations division. He is going to be replaced by Jim McPhee, who is the current Vice President of Operations at Disneyland. He's been with the company for about 20 years, and internally cast members seem to be very encouraged by this as he's quite knowledgeable about the company and Epcot. Some listeners are also letting me know about a new design of the refillable mugs throughout the resorts at Walt Disney World. It appears as though the mugs are now going with a single design showing up around property instead of the resort-specific mugs that have been present in the past. Now, I'm not sure if this is something that's going to take place resort-wide, possibly either as a cost-cutting effort or a way to allow guests the opportunity to take advantage of the refillable mugs in resorts other than their own. So far, I've been told that they've inspired at Pop Century, All Stars, Saratoga Springs, Old Key West, and recently Port Orleans Riverside. If anyone has purchased one of these mugs and can tell us some more about where they can be used, as well as their duration, by all means, please let us know. I received an email earlier this week from someone from the HackerCraft company who says, Lou, I guess you know by now that Breathless is unfortunately no longer at the resort, but we are delivering a replacement for Breathless with a HackerCraft, which will be named Breathless 2. He goes on to let me know that it should be delivered within the next few weeks, but I did include this in the rumor section only because I have not heard officially anything from Disney. But for those of us who are fans of Breathless and were sad to see it come uh, out of the water, it is nice to know that a new Breathless may very well be on its way. That's going to do it for a somewhat abbreviated look at Walt Disney World news and rumors this week. Like I said, there was not much coming out of the resort uh, this past week. If you have any news that you'd like to share, any rumors that you'd like to discuss... Please let me know. Send an email to lou at wdwradio.com. Call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW or post in the forums at disneyworldtrivia.com. One of the most beloved and missed attractions in all of Walt Disney World is undoubtedly Epcot Center's Horizons. And to be honest, when I started preparing for this segment, I really wasn't sure if it was just sentimentality and really a sense of nostalgia that made me think I missed and enjoyed it so much. But watching videos and going through the old documents and books during my research really made me remember why I missed this attraction so much. And I'm so sad that it's no longer a part of Walt Disney World to be honest, I could actually talk about this attraction for hours. I know, shocker that I actually couldn't talk for hours, because there's so much about this, from the attraction's history, to its themes, to its technology and message. So instead of me just just going on forever, I wanted to welcome back Jeff Pepper and invite him to journey on my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine to visit this attraction as part of our collective Epcot Center Retrospective Series in celebration of Epcot's 25th. Welcome back, Jeff.
4: Thanks, Lou. We're gonna dream it. We're gonna do it.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I assume you are a Horizons fan as well. If not, this segment's gonna end real quick.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, we'll keep them. We'll keep them entertained here for a while.
3: <laughs> Good. Well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna kind of go through the origins and the history of the attraction. We're gonna talk about some of the pervasive themes that ran through it take a kind of a, a, a virtual trip through the ride itself, pointing out some of the fun facts and trivia, the music, why it was closed, when it was closed and more. So Jeff, what do you say? Let's just get started and let's kind of go back to early 1982 before Epcot opened and kind of talk about the history of, uh, of horizons.
4: Well, let's go back a little further, Lou. Let's uh, take it back a little further than that. Uh, the the ride has some pretty strong associations with uh, two World's Fairs, uh, the 39 New York World's Fair and the 64 World's Fair. And uh, in the 39 World's Fair, uh, Horizons was, uh, had a lot in common with the very popular attraction at that World's Fair called Futurama. Not the Matt Groening, uh, <laughs> Simpsons-esque TV show, <laughs> but it's where, it's where they got the name Futurama. It was a, a GM-sponsored pavilion at the 39 World's Fair that was actually subtitled "Highways and Horizons," and it had a very popular attraction called Futurama that was basically a look at the world 20 years ahead. So basically, you know, it was taking you up to like 1960. So it was very, very similar in theme, and um, and the whole World's Fair for 39 was the whole theme was you know the world of tomorrow. So it just tied in. Pretty much, and you know, so much of Epcot was based on that World's Fair model. But then, jumping up to the '64 World's Fair, which is more Disney fans are familiar with, you know, Walt Disney's association with that. Um, the key attraction there, of course, is Carousel of Progress. Um, very important because General Electric sponsored Carousel of Progress, and General Electric would go on to sponsor Horizons. And, and many people see Horizons as kind of a Sequel of sorts to uh, Carousel of Progress.
3: Absolutely, it absolutely is, and we're going to talk about that later because you are going to see a lot of those same themes carried over, um, both in in scenes and in just kind of um, themes that kind of carry you know through the attractions themselves.
4: But yeah, it's um, it just was very much in that you know futurism you know model that came out of the World's Fair kind of thinking and you know attraction planning.
3: Hmm. Well, excellent, because I was actually going to start in 1982,
4: so... Well, laid the groundwork for you. Go ahead. Excellent. excellent. Well,
3: if you remember, um, you know, in early 1982, before Epcot Center opened, uh, you could actually ride on the monorail, and it would take you through the construction site when it was really getting close to being completed, and if you recall, I don't know if you had a chance to ride it, Jeff, there was actually no building for Horizons as it got closer to opening. It was just a, a kind of a large steel framework that was in place. Probably wasn't even half finished by the time the park opened.
4: Yeah, all those maps and everything gave, you know, coming in 83, uh, that and, you know, they had the concept art up in the promo materials for that in Living Seas. But yeah, it was it was under construction. I did ride, I did the Epcot preview where you rode the monorail around prior to opening and it was still pretty much under construction at that point
3: yeah they did was uh, a
4: month beforehand.
3: yeah they, they started site prep work around august 5th 1981 they began construction in january 82 so it was going to really take about 21 months until it was completed and this was one of the attractions that was part of what they considered to be phase two of epcot center and the building itself is pretty notable because it sat on three acres it was two two floors it was 78 feet high and also went underground as well and I'll throw in a quick little did-you-know here. You know what actually used more steel in the Horizons building than it did in Spaceship Earth? 30, oh, that's impressive. 3,700 tons of steel. Well,
4: and, when you think about it, too, I guess the ride, when you think about how extensive the ride was, you know, it was probably as extensive as Spaceship Earth. So it just, you know, wasn't that big ball on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, you know, it, it, we we mentioned spaceship, and it got me to thinking because if you remember the the building itself, it almost looked like a big shape spaceship. And in doing my research, I found a lot of old promo items and the the, the coming soon things. And there was actually one that that really stuck out in my mind because it was a nighttime scene, and there was a uh, a door open in the front of the attraction with a bright light inside it, very very reminiscent of the ads and the the final scene from Close Encounters of the Third Kind.
4: I had a feeling that's where you we were going. Yeah,
3: <laughs> there's a lot. You know what? You're going to see through this discussion. There's a lot of references to, you know, movies and themes and, and sci-fi stuff that was going on, um, out that time. But you know, the question it begs the question: Why wasn't it ready? You know, why wasn't it ready like the rest of Epcot um, on October 1st, 1982? And there's a bunch of reasons, and and part of it as- actually has to do with the changes that it went through, including but not limited to its name. Um, There were several concept revisions before it appeared in in 1983. And actually, I'm sure you know this, Jeff. The original name was going to be Century 3. That was one of the the original Mm -hmm. names that they had for it. And that was going to signify the U.S. entering its third century as its own nation. But Imagineers and GE executives, they kind of realized that the attraction, as well as Epcot itself, wasn't just for Americans. So they changed the name at that point to Future Probe which didn't last very long. They, they felt it had too much of a medical connotation, and eventually somebody came up with the name of Horizons.
4: And I think they even in some of that early development, they were actually referring to it as New Horizons um, here and there.
3: Right, right. And, and legend has it that both the story and the themes and, and the name itself actually came from, from GE executives. Um, CEOs Reginald Jones and Jack Welch, who was his successor, came up with the final name, Horizons, in late 1981, feeling that there was something new on the horizons. And when you reach it, there's another horizon to challenge you. So you have the new Horizons and, and Horizons concept. So not only did the name change, but the early designs had a very, very different looking building and attraction altogether. There's early, early concept art that shows a very tall observation tower, this huge OmniMax theater, uh, and a, a much, much smaller building. hmm The theme also changed, too. In 1979, Disney legend George McGuinness had planned for something he called an Epcot Edison Labs attraction. And what they wanted to do with tying it with GE was profile Thomas Edison and the history of the GE company. But they decided later on that they wanted to keep the whole theme of Future World and Epcot Center as a whole. Instead of looking back in the history, they wanted to look forward into the future. Another thing to note about the building itself was... Uh, a lot of famous names and Disney Imagineers that we all know worked and had a, had a very big hand in this. the attraction. Claude Coates did a lot of the interior layout. Marty Sklar actually had a hand in taking a lot of the film elements out. He wanted more audio-animatronic elements. George McGuinness was the project designer. He made a lot of interior design changes. One that I, I found in my research that I thought was very interesting was you'll see kind of as you go through the attraction, you see there was an underwater submarine and a space colony shuttle. He made the, the shape of those very very similar just to kind of tie them all together and make it very very seamless. Don iwerks as in son of Ub IWorks developed the multi-projection scenes that had a lot to do with those special effects some of which unfortunately never made it into the final attraction there was a star tunnel that you're going to see at the ending that they just couldn't kind of you know shimmy in <laughs> into the building because space was such uh, at a premium something else that didn't also didn't make it in was a, spe- a series of speed ramps as you exit the attraction so think kind of space mountain which really was going to allow you to get a, a lot more from the corporate sponsor who was General Electric Believe it or not, Chairman Jack Welch was the one who felt that he he felt it looked too much like a commercial at the end and he had it pulled. And this was actually a very good thing because this ends up leading to the creation of the famous choose your own ending.
4: Right. It was interesting. In in all of that, I was just curious when I was doing it. It stands out really distinctly as, you know, one of the original Webcott attractions that had no post show or any kind of related you know, post-show activities or anything like much of the other places did, even like something like, you know, Universe of Energy had the energy exchange in CommuniCorps, and just, I was always just curious, you know, why GE didn't pursue anything that would have been a little bit more commercially, you know, motivated in that regard.
3: Or, at like you said, like I said, tie into something in CommuniCorps, uh, but you're right, there's nothing. When you exit the attraction, you kind of, you originally walked past a mural, then you walked past, and we'll go into this later on. Um, kind of this rainbow tunnel, a couple of images of GE, and that was it. And then you, you exited the show building, no ro- no gift shop, no restaurant, no, no yeah. nothing. You, you just walked right into the outside. So let's talk a little bit about the themes of the attraction. And what I'm going to do is, let me read to you what the promo material said. Horizons was dedicated to humanity's future. It's a careful synthesis of all the wonders within Epcot and applies the elements of communication, energy, transportation, creativity, and technology to a better lifestyle for the family of the future. And that comes from one of my favorite collectible books, and that's the old pictorial souvenir of Walt Disney World. And you're going to see those things really come through because Horizons really was representative of all the themes of Epcot and Future World specifically. In fact, th- there was this, this one attraction really encompassed all the themes of Future World. For example, you had communications talked in here, much like you had in Communicore energy tying into universe of energy, transportation, world of motion. There was food. You had the orange groves tied into the land. Mm-hmm. You had Earth, you know, spaceship Earth and technology, which was kind of related to this planned space pavilion that never made it. Life and, and health, right? The seas and the living yeah. seas, life and health, over wonder of life, and the power of dreams and, and you know dreaming about the future tied into the imagination pavilion. And you really see that as you go through. But the, the central theme, the really pervasive theme that was not only related to Horizons, but in everything that Disney does from its theme parks to all forms of entertainment was the family. And we talked before about this being a sequel to the carousel of progress. Well, this was this next generation family from the carousel of progress that we were going to meet and get to know them. Um, And because it really was less about the technology, but more about the purpose of it and and how this technology was going to help us and help our families.
4: Yeah, it was such an extension of that, the whole carousel of progress. And uh, the interesting thing is that folks um, like us that have kind of been raised at, on the East Coast, you know, where the uh, Walt Disney World folks, you know, were a little at a loss for... We didn't get the whole carousel of progress experience when it um, was at the World's Fair. You know, granted, it was in New York uh, before, you know, it was uh, migrated to... Did it go to Disneyland first? Yeah. Well,
3: did it go to Disneyland first, right?
4: and then came, came to Disney World later It, you know, they had the whole progress land kind of post show that showed kind of like the city of the future and there was just a whole lot of that what ended up coming ultimately to Horizons was there and um, when Carousel hit Walt Disney World we basically just got the Carousel, we didn't get any of the post show elements or anything like that which really encompassed a lot of what Horizons did become yeah, well,
3: the original Carousel of Progress building was a two-story building. And, right, and, and Progress we, we Land,
4: yeah, was was on the on the second level.
3: What we're going to do now is we're going to talk about the attraction itself, and you're going to really see, you know, kind of how and why we, we all seem to miss it because it was unique on so many levels, and uh, I really had a great time researching this, this segment because it was a lot of fun to kind of go through this again. So let's kind of start at the beginning. Let's talk about some of the reasons why this was a unique attraction. The first thing is when you got on... The vehicles themselves were very unique. They traveled sideways. There's not a lot of vehicles in in uh, Walt Disney World right. that go sideways. And if you remember, you could sit up to four, somewhat skinny people in the car. You had that sliding door in the middle. Very relatively quick load time. They there was it, the load time was about four and a, four and a half seconds. Allowed for almost 700 people on the ride at the time. It was about 15 minutes long. The track was 1346 feet. Uh, You can get about 184 ride vehicles in at the same time. Now, it it might look a lot like an Omnimover and be somewhat similar, but it's not. You know, there was the continuous loading, but it really wasn't technically an Omnimover attraction. Part of the thing, too, that that differs it from an Omnimover, um, these vehicles actually tilted backwards. If you remember in the final scenes, your vehicle, you might not realize it, tilted backwards to give you that feeling that you were traveling through space or traveling through the sea.
4: Just a historical note there, and just you can say shut up about the World's Fair stuff already, but um, that type of ride mechanism was the type of ride mechanism in terms of being sideways that was in Futurama in 1939. Um, they called them I think the magic chairs or the magic carpet chairs or something like that, but it was a similar situation where it was side facing, and you were looking out and giving sort of this belief of being suspended above this, uh, the scenes you were traveling through. Hmm.
3: No, I'm not going to tell you shit about that. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> Here's a little did you know. There was actually an escape hatch in the vehicles. The center part of the uh, of the back of the vehicle actually tilted backwards. So if you got stuck on the ride somewhere, there was actually this uh, little evac route behind all the vehicles. And that's how you were able to get out because you couldn't go forward, especially in the OmniMax section because you'd fall about 65 feet. But you can escape from the back of the vehicle. And if you want to pick up the one that's on sale on eBay, you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs>
4: Yeah, it, it, I think um, we got to remember one of the coolest, coolest parts of this, and I heard so many people talk about it later, was when you actually walked into the building. Mm-hmm. Um, if I remember them correctly, you kind of walked in and you kind of hung right, and a couple of very, very key elements were in this area. Uh, first and foremost, you saw the future port, right, uh, which was the large future port sign, and the future port was very, very important to the theme. Uh, it was basically you you were going on a journey into the future. And the future port was, you know, a futuristic-looking kind of airport, you know, destination board. Mm-hmm. And it had lots and lots of destinations listed, but it did very specifically did have the destinations um, that we would ultimately go to. And, you know, we'll probably as we go through the ride, we'll talk about the actual details. Horizons had a great, great, great details. Mm-hmm. Um, very, you know, it has, you know, I, I kind of view it as a mythology. Um, there's an entire sort of science fiction mythology to its its settings, locations, places. And as you were saying, like all the different vehicles, transportation vehicles kind of tie into each other. It's really good that way. And then the one thing that, you know, was so distinct when you walked right through that first opening queue area was the orange smell. If you remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came kind of at you from sort of the right hand side and it just, you know, it was like, oh, smell <laughs> or, it was the smell it's smelletizer, <laughs> <the> right? <laughs> <laughs> That was, you know, blowing the orange, uh, orange grove smell at you right there in the lobby. It would hit you again, I guess, at the desert scene, but uh, it was right there as well. And the one other thing that was just, and this was something that I, I probably rode the attraction a half a dozen times or so before I caught this, but it was the very once again the subtle element that you're traveling. You're in a, you're in like a sort of airport of the future, and you have these destinations. If you remember when you walked in, once you got past that future port sign, then you kind of curved around through the queue area there. And I believe it was to the left. They had the very large octagonal uh, screens. That mm-hmm. There was three of them, a set of three, and they served kind of as these futuristic travel posters right. that represented the three destinations. And again, very subtle when you got to stop and pay attention, there were audio snippets there that were advertising the three destinations.
2: Nice Mesa Verde. The most advanced desert reclamation complex in the
0: Western Hemisphere invites you to explore its wide range of career possibilities. Brava Centauri, newest of the exciting Centauri series of space stations, offers remarkably rewarding opportunities in Earth support vocations. Sea Castle, the newest and most exciting floating city in the Pacific, invites you and your family to come away with us to the sea. Convenient daily departures by Sea train and Skyland.
4: Um Those audio files are very cool. I, I For years and years, uh, I sought after getting just even raw audio of those because I, I just love them.
3: Yeah, and I, what I remember about going through the queue was they weren't just posters. They kind of had this, this 3D kaleidoscope yeah, yeah. effect. And you're right. If you listen to the audio, they talked about the Maglev Express to Mesa Verde and the Sea Castle and Bravo Centauri. All the, see, yep, right. <laughs> all the places that you'd see through the attraction and all the destinations you could choose at the very end, which obviously right. made Horizon such, such a great ride. So, but you're right, I, I was definitely going to touch on the queue, but the, uh, the once you get on the attraction itself, you could see very quickly that the theme was to look back in time at history's view of tomorrow almost kind of like how you look how almost like the theme of Tomorrowland in the magic kingdom you know right. the old jules verne uh visions of the future you know they had the pictures of people flying to mars on a daily basis and as they said the, the grand old man himself jules verne
0: there's the grand old man himself jules verne this is the way a moonshot looked to him back in the late 1800s old uncle jules may not have had all the answers but he had the right idea he-
3: I'm sure we all remember the audio-animatronic figure of him in the little tiny rocket with the floating dog and the chicken. And the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and that oh-so-creepy um, moon with with a rocket in its eye. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a projection kind of in that in that next scene. That was followed by all these designs of, of old flying machines. And if you think back to some old drawings, um, kind of 19th century drawings from artists like Robita, things like that, they had these black-and-white cutouts showing all these fanciful futuristic flying machines that would take you basically anywhere and and from there you start getting into the real kind of meat and potatoes of the attraction you get into the first big audio animatronic and that was the easy living scene and, if you remember, and
4: again here this, this kind of throws us back to the world's fair themes uh, that whole easy living sequence came right out of you know 30s and 40s futurism um, you know the wacky robots the kind of pulp sci-fi kind of View of things, but a sort of almost a high society view. you know, you had the the barber machine or right. whatever. You had, you know, the, the robot butler with the duster. Um, and again, there was the distinct connection to Carousel of Progress. They, the guy was on the uh, the, the pseudo TV radio. <laughs> right. thinking There's a great big beautiful tomorrow.
3: Right. There was a little. There was a, a woman taking a bath on the second floor. It was a tiny TV.
0: Easy living. It's always been just around the corner. And at the end of every day, there's a great
4: big
0: beautiful tomorrow. And just a dream away.
4: You're
3: right. They had the one robot that was vacuuming. They had the other robot vacuuming, in the kitchen. It was. There was a robot in yeah. the kitchen that kind of, Again,
4: yeah, had the soap suds everywhere. You know,
3: this may be my inner geek coming out again. It looked like the probe droid from the beginning of Empire Strikes Back with these kind of eight (laughs) hanging arms, and you know, one's cooking, one's cleaning, one's trying to feed the cat, one's trying to, you know, mop the floor. You know, for sure, the
4: Empire knows we're here,
3: (laughs) (laughs) exactly. But again, the the tie in the carousel of progress is very, very evident, you know, here, and again, you're going to see it as you move through. The next scene took us back to um, more more of movie clips. They showed some old silent movie clips um, showing, the, again, their vision of the future. And-
4: yeah, it was Fritz Lang's Metropolis and Woman on the Moon. And uh, one very, very important thing, at least from my inner geek standpoint, was um, – and this is interesting because so many people would, would ride and always question, where the heck was this clip from? If you remember the clip, it was like sort of the limited animation clip where, you know, mother and father, you know, they split off and father goes to, you know, work and mom and son right, go right. to the shopping center. You know, da, da 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 and it's just this little cool 50s animation. That was from uh, the Wonderful World of Disney, or Disneyland Anthology program that was called Magic Highways USA. And the last about 10 or 15 minutes of the program had this futuristic look of future transportation systems and it was called The Road Ahead. I actually did a post on my uh, blog a few months back on it. Um, it's really hard to come by. Uh, I actually picked it up off of the Disney Channel uh, quite a few years back. Um, but it is a really, really cool piece of, you know, 50s futurism. And um, that was always that that really neat kind of segment there. And I always had people asking where the heck that came from.
3: Yeah, I never knew either. That's a great bit of trivia. Um, and again, the t- this, the the piece that you're talking about, there's kind of this uh, this giant sectional car that travels to the city, and, right. and Dad's yeah. has three monitors in front of him on his conference call. He goes to work, Mom goes to the store, and, and you know the, the kids go to school. And uh, this this 50s scene was actually called New York City. This was one of the things that was that that changed very late too. This was originally going to be a, a a very 20s Art Deco kind of scene. Then they decided later on to go with with the uh, 50s, because like you said, the, the future visions um, that were very, very prevalent in the 50s just worked right. so much better there. Uh, this is where the attraction did something pretty cool, because this is when it, oh, it brought you up to the second level. And it really right. opened up to this very expansive theater with these huge, huge OmniMax show screens. I mean, they're 80 feet by 120 feet.
4: Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. You forgot about the Jetsons scene.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, with the little burger joint. With the
4: little... Uh... <laughs> the future from the 50s. We always thought the future would be fun. <laughs>
3: Yeah, very on, much, of a, very much of a Jetsons reference.
4: <laughs> I mean, it had everything but George Jetson in that room. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> uh, okay, now you can go on to the. Thank you. <laughs> the
3: um, there a um, there was a picture I came across of them God building were geeks uh, no. <laughs> again, demonstrating why I didn't date much in high school. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, the Omnimax screens are pretty cool how they're they're built because it's not you know just one giant framework they're built in a, this big grid of triangles and without the screen in front of it it almost looks like the outside of Spaceship Earth how they connected these things together and again I made reference before to you know not trying to get out of your car you were actually suspended sixty five feet in the air when you were on your way up going past this Omnimax um, screen
4: yeah they said they were eighty feet in diameter eighty That's by one twenty okay.
3: Um, let's see. From here, you you travel on to the present, then later on into the future. Again, carrying over a theme much like Spaceship Earth, going into the past, the present, then the future. You looked through this giant silicon chip uh, before you went down into a sea scene. And this is when you got to the next kind of segment of the attraction. You look at 21st Century Living, or at least their vision of it at the time, and we get into bringing in the family that I spoke of earlier. Um, You see the narrators in your attraction are part of this large family that you're going to get to meet and know very well as the ride continues because each one of these family members is going to be in one of the three different possible endings.
4: Yeah, uh, we we go to our first location and again, here was a location that was listed on the future port and that's uh, Nova City.
3: In this scene, you see your dad, you see the dad on the left-hand side kind of making music on this very funky, futuristic thing. The mother's talking to the daughter, who, again, we're going to see later on on the desert farm using this very high-tech holographic projection. Uh, you'll see the plants growing using hydroponics, a very clear reference to the land pavilion. Uh, they have mm-hmm. very, very similar kind of things there. And... Uh, There's a great book, an old book called Walt Disney's Epcot Center, Creating the New World of Tomorrow. And there's a great quote about this section from there I'm going to read real quick. It says, Horizon's ride-through attraction culminates in tomorrow's windows, a revealing look into future lifestyles. The city apartment of the future boasts a spectacular view of 21st century skyline. While the man plays a synthesizer, his wife chats with their daughter via holographic teleview." From the control pod of the desert farm, a woman in a jumpsuit, because of course everybody in the future wore jumpsuits, directs the work of robot harvesters. Her desert hover car is parked behind the control pod. And again, this is one of my favorite scenes because you get onto the opposite side of the partition. You're now in the desert scene. This is the first time you really get that smell and the sense of the orange grove.
4: Yeah, and it's 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 interesting because um it's the force perspective really comes into play then as, you know, as they were doing these sets and trying to give you just a sense of scope. You know, you saw you were dealing with models and such, but the force perspective and then, you know, if you remember there was this storm out over the desert that they were simulating up high with the thunder and the cloud cover and everything like that. And then the woman who's actually at the control panel there is actually referencing that, you know, that we've got a storm coming in or whatever. Get the get the hover lifts, you know, back in.
3: Right. Right and that the interesting thing is too, this isn't something that Disney just kind of sketched up on their own. What they did, they actually worked with the University of Arizona's environmental research labs because they wanted to make sure they used genetic engineering principles to, you know, come up with new possible plant spe- species and create these robotic harvesting machines that theoretically could be used in the future.
4: Yeah, those were the helium lifters.
3: They look like spaceships floating above the orange groves, almost lifting yeah, mm-hmm. lifting everything up into them and then, you know, harvesting them and, and taking them wherever they needed to go. Uh, the next scene... Brought us into. Uh, okay,
4: I got to go geek again, though here. Okay. I, <laughs> it's the, again, it's the details, you know. You and I go to town on, you know, we do our DSIs and we talk about the details and everything. But that's like what that. it's all
3: about. I mean, that's why. Right. The, that's why, why we do these things to so because maybe people don't remember but, some of the details.
4: Okay, here we are. We're riding in our car. You know, we, we're banking around there, and the the woman's in the like the little, um, you know, globe, whatever control booth there, looking out over the desert. And so as you pass by on to the right of her there when you're looking right on, you see the little um, hover lift or whatever, mm-hmm. like the little like little ship that you ultimately ride on later on. As it's sitting like sort of on its landing pad, it has its like, you know, little cockpit on it. each side, you know, it has the little fan units that um, or I guess the, you know, what gives it its lift or whatever. What blew my mind is that when you looked at it, you had light coming down and the shadow going through those fans. And you saw the shadow of the fan spinning.
3: Yeah, yeah, you're right. In
4: other words, they were spinning. (laughs) (laughs) And it's in here again. You can have something that they could have thrown that in and just just made it totally static, and it would have been fine. But the detail went so far beyond that. Yes, the fan was spinning, and then they shone the light through it in such a way to to give you that, you know, so you saw it that way. And that always, I was always just amazed whenever I would go past that and just see that you know, that detail that was just, it was just great.
3: And you're right. It's pervasive through the, at the entire attraction. When you see half of one scene from one perspective, you see the other half from the other perspective that, that match completely perfectly. And you're going to see right. that as the, the whole thing goes on in the next scene, for example, he's getting his submersible ready and he's talking to his girlfriend via this holographic uh, projection phone to his side. You see his audio animatronic figure. You see the submersible, which is called a solo sub Below him, if you kind of remember, there was a, almost a two-level area to this scene. Right. There was a teacher and the kids in wetsuit, they were playing with a seal. And then she was giving him a, uh, give him a a lesson down there.
4: Yeah, with the buddy system, you know, stick right. together.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but if you looked really carefully, like I said, details, in this scene, you saw that the uh, this single passenger submersible was... Uh, suspended over this, this almost look like a water tank. And later on, right. if you chose your sea ending, that's how you would get into that thing. You would be in that s- submersible, going down and in, going into to the sea base.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this makes for a really great transition because the the boy that's uh, the teenage boy that's at in Sea Castle fixing the submersible is talking to his girlfriend, who was the daughter in the desert scene, and basically. They have an interesting transition in that, in the desert she scene, she's an animatronic, and he's a live actor on the screen, and then it juxtaposes when you get to see Castle, he then becomes the animatronic, and he's talking to her, and they're discussing the upcoming birthday party. He's the the Beach Boy. That's right. That's right. The Beach Boy. (laughs) (laughs) Fraternizing with that your granddaughter's fraternizing with that Beach Boy. (laughs) Floating City.
0: studying instead of flirting with that beach boy he is
2: not a beach boy he's studying marine biology there on the floating city gosh
4: darn it
3: (laughs) (laughs) just like in carousel of progress where they criticize you know everybody for for who they're seeing (laughs) yeah
4: (laughs) (laughs) so the uh, (laughs)
0: dad
3: the next scene is uh, is obviously the space scene and this is going to be the space colony where the sun works and lives and again being geeks that we are, if you remember that his single person spacecraft that you see when you first enter that scene that's kind of hanging out in that very Battlestar Galactica looking uh, launch tunnel, looks exactly like the solo sub from the ocean scene, and if you look really, really carefully, like geeks like us, you'll see that it's called the Century 3 Intercolony Transport.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always was trying to take a good flash picture of that, even though we weren't allowed. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, and I got I got to step back one thing, and I've got to go totally, you know, like you know, reminisce here because I know you're going to probably jump on board with this because we're 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 taken from the same cloth. When I first rode Horizons, um, I, d- I had no expectation going in. When I when I visited it for the first time, I had I had nothing to prep me for really what it was all about or what type of an attraction it was. So I, I walked in blind. And just the very fact that I did it that way, I loved it. I mean, I think I have such a great memory of the first time I wrote it. So as, you know, as I was going through the attraction, I was just, just one thing after another was just totally blowing me away because truly at that point in time, you know, you had, you know, things like Pirates and the Haunted Mansion, but nothing was really done on this scale in terms of the special effects, you know, combining with the audio animatronics, combining with the filmed, you know, sequence and everything like that. And I, you know, in in my Love of Disney World. I I can go back in my memories and and reach out and grab out those wow moments. You know mm-hmm. those moments where you know, you kind of single them out and say that just blew me away. And you know what? I I have a whole list of them. You know, in, in a mental list in my head. One of my wow moments is when, you know, they're they're, the husband and wife are you know debating the the relative merits of kelp, <laughs> and you're, you're banking around the bend and you're you're underwater and then you know they transition and say, but what about space? And when you came around that bend and all of a sudden you were up in space mm-hmm. looking out at that star field and looking out at those revolving uh, space stations, I was blown away. I just, I was amazed because I could never have imagined anything on that scale in a theme park attraction at that point in time. It was just, it was just amazing.
3: Yeah, I, I remember as well going on it. I mean, I was very, relatively young at the time. Uh, let's see, 1983, it was like 15. <laughs> but I remember this and Spaceship Earth Instantly making me love Epcot and making Epcot right. be my favorite attraction, favorite theme park at the time, which, you know, w- was odd. But just because of the the geek level on these two and, and just the ability to choose your own ending and just technology references were just awesome to me and still are, still are. As I look back at some of the videos, I, like I said, I see why I and I think so many other people love this attraction so much and have such fond memories of it.
4: It was, it was almost like being in a movie. When, when you came around into that space scene, you were hit with the music. I mean, and they actually, I mean, on some of the early, um, to remember the early uh, CD collections, they actually have the space theme, the instrumental space theme from Horizons included on some of those collections because it was so very, very distinctive and especially distinctive to that whole sequence it was just as you came around the bend and then kind of went right into the space station.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk a little about that space scene, because I think it's great, and I think we probably all have memories of the giant gravity wheel with the the mother and the son and the dog and Napoleon who's floating around and that little kid.
5: Hey, Mom! Mom! What is it, Tommy? Look, Mom, I'm flying! Why don't you try it? I don't know what
2: I'm going to do with you. Don't let go of Napoleon. We don't want to lose him.
0: Hey, Mom, what if he just floats away? He won't. Hey, mom. What if I just float away?
2: Then your father will get you as soon as he manages to get your shoe. (laughs) What?
3: And remember the one less mouth,
4: the feet, kid.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember the? um, I think it was a woman who was uh, on the upside down bicycle. She had the big screen in front of it. It looked like she was pedaling through the forest or something, and she was doing her. doing her exercises upside down in zero gravity. And you'll see, obviously, the the clear reference in the the queue of mission space. There's a gravity wheel there as well. And if you look dead center, you'll see the old Horizons logo.
4: Right. And then we have the crystals growing. Right. Right. Isn't that lovely?
3: <laughs> and again here, this was not Disney just making this stuff up as they went along or, or doing what was cool. They actually worked with physicists from Princeton to see if some of the concepts they talked about in these space scenes could eventually one day become reality. And finally, we get to the, the to the big payoff, the climax the grandson's party, because this, this is what we've all been leading up to, the whole time. But again, this is referencing the fact that the central theme really is family, and that's this is allows the entire family to visit this this birthday party virtually. There's giant. There's three scenes of people kind of in these holographic screens in front of the family on the couch who are watching this this birthday celebration going on. The birthday boy is with his parents on Omega Santari. You know, the, the other people are on Nova City, Mesa Verde, Sea Castle, and they're all kind of singing happy birthday and joining in this, in this birthday party together.
4: And they were using the animatronics in that effect because I think they couldn't get any kind of 3D, you know, technology to work with live actors at that point, even though they were having the live actors intermixed throughout on some of the video screens.
3: But it looked great. I mean, it looked oh, like
4: yeah, these, absolutely, you know, yeah. incredible... It was, <laughs> they a similar, it was a similar effect to kind of that... That mirror effect from Haunted Mansion, I'm guessing. Not being a tech guy.
3: <laughs> Let's not, I don't want to spoil the magic for anybody, and plus, I don't know how they did it. So, <laughs> which it is probably what, which was probably what was blew me away real, as a was- kid. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, okay, so that, that really isn't the big payoff. The big payoff in Horizons is the ability to choose your own ending or, as they said, your flight path back to future port. You had the space, desert, and undersea. There was uh, three touchscreens, and obviously majority ruled.
5: Passengers. you are invited
0: to choose your own flight path back to the future port. Please look down at the lighted panels
5: in front of you. Press one of the three ride choices: space, desert, or undersea. Everyone can choose. Majority rules. All passengers, make your selections now.
3: They were originally actually going to have four choices. There was the fourth one was going to be this maglev ride through. Uh, through a futuristic city called Nova City. And you'll hear a reference to it again in the queue and on that old FuturePort sign, but they eventually did not go with it. They uh, What they did do is they built three different show scenes in miniature and filmed these. I mean, some of these show scenes and the miniature models were, were huge, they were 82 feet wide. One of them, the desert scene, was actually built in an airplane hangar in Burbank. And they had to f- plant 5,000 little tiny miniature trees. For, for that one scene.
4: <laughs> Heck of a train layout.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, and they did, it took about a year to get all that work done for this scene, which really was only about 30 seconds of film time. And again, they used the, they used part of the models in other sections, and they used part of the film in other sections. But if you remember, each of the scenes kind of took you through these different things, and the first one that made me that I that I used to love was a space scene. This was you your original view was from the back of that old century three shuttle that we saw in the, the space scene, taking off into space through that Battlestar Galactica tube, and you kind of wandered through space and eventually, um, you eventually landed or connected with the um, this this big docking port on the right. space station. The cool thing, I think the, the best use of the technology though was in the desert scene. You flew over the orange groves, you flew over mountains, right. you landed on that pad that you saw in the earlier scene that you spoke about before. You landed on that pad right near the control panel. And really you and made, the, made the best use of this flyby technology, I think.
4: And then the great part of it is the detail again is as that came down for the landing, the the desert dust scene, you know, sand or whatever was flying all up from it being that 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 type of hovercraft. That's it too was really a cool detail.
3: Yeah, and you—you you really got the, the sense that you were kind of going through the trench sequence uh, from the Death Star and Star Wars. Yeah. I forget. this is not just me being a geek because the person that actually consulted on this was one of the people that helped develop uh, that scene for Star Wars.
4: And, and then we had they had the sub scene, right? Um, the underwater sub scene was the final of the three,
3: right? And like I said, you, you were that your solo sub was dropped into the chamber that you saw earlier, um, and then kind of traveled through through the scene to eventually dock with with the underwater city so um, pretty impressive technology they used they had seven stationary projectors the vehicle tilted back and forth a little bit to give you that effect of accelerating through the different scenes and it worked i mean this was one attraction that no matter what we picked i wanted to ride again and and choose one of the other
4: two endings right And things could get a little contentious during the voting. Sometimes.
3: It was an all out brawl in my family. So.
4: Yeah. So, you know, if you're if just a couple, like it was my wife and I at the time, you know, then, you know, we're riding with strangers. And it's like you're looking over out of the corner of your eye. like, What, what are you going to do over there? <laughs> you I'm going to cover up my choice while I vote.
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> we uh, we touched earlier about the post show or kind of lack of it because there really wasn't very much. Originally, when you exited, there was a, a giant mural. That you passed beautiful, beautiful mural called the Prologue and the Promise. It was 19 by 160 feet wide. It was designed by Bob McCall, and it was really based on a lot of original attraction concept art for Horizons, as well as the planned space pavilion. Uh, they that actually the mural didn't last very long because Disney found out they would poll guests after the attraction, and they didn't seem to realize or I guess appreciate the fact that GE was the sponsor. It wasn't referenced very much through the attraction. you didn't get it from that scene so they ended up pulling that mural there were some uh, kind of do you remember the old kind of globes that glowed and uh, as you touched it kind of the little electrical sparks came off of it Mm -hmm. there were a few of those logos there there was a a rainbow tunnel almost like what you had in the old Journey into Imagination post show that was there for a while Um, and that was really it I mean there really wasn't very much it was just kind of a way to get you out of the building
4: it's the, the the mural the part with the mural is really a shame because i I did not see that. I did not ride it until um the first time I wrote it. the mural had been taken out already, and I only came upon it later on and it was and it was interesting because I bought the Bob McCall Bob McCall had a book that was just a collection of his artwork, and it was one of these things I was you know on the internet, and I found out there's this you know mural you know I go back to the Bob McCall book it's in there <laughs> you know, I had it sitting on my shelf all these years, beautiful, beautiful, yeah beautiful piece of artwork and what's always kind of interested me is for as much as horizons has developed this kind of cult status among disney fans i'm surprised they have not gone back and done just some type of poster print of that because it's just such a magnificent piece of artwork
3: yeah and poor bob mccall who who paints such a huge thing and doesn't really last very long um in the post show
4: Yeah, and that was interesting because the book I had, the Bob McCall book I had, actually showed him standing in front of the mural. And it was huge. Yeah. It was just unbelievably large.
3: You know, talking about changes to the attraction um, and the changes with GE, adding some of their signage, they didn't renew their corporate sponsorship after the 10-year contract expired in 1993. So they removed all those references to GE as well as some audio that was in the attraction. They ran the attraction without a sponsor really until 1994 when they closed it unceremoniously just kinda shut it down. It reopened uh in December of nineteen ninety-five, really only because Universe of Energy and World of Motion were about to go down for refurbs. So that would have left basically only the wonders of life open on that side of Future World. So it was opened almost out of necessity necessity, more so than anything else. It eventually closed for good on your birthday, January 9th, (laughs) 1999. Um, and obviously the the, the entire building, I, I think probably for the first time ever, Disney destroyed an entire show building as far as I can remember anyway, to make room for mission space, which opened October 9th, two thousand three
4: and here this is this is where you know we talked about this a little bit you know on our last Epcot um, discussion it's it's the shame of the dynamic of Epcot being so totally dependent in some regards on these corporate sponsorships because it really, you're absolutely right, when GE pulled the sponsorship when they didn't renew up for the second term that the other 10 years or whatever it just, that was it. It was almost like everybody just gave up on it. It was just there was no incentive for them to do anything with it. You know, another corporate sponsor didn't come on board and it just languished for the next, you know, five years and it was just, it was a sad depressing death for what was really just At future world hallmark attraction and it deserves better it you know and it's it's all kind of circumstance and you know there's no need for finger pointing but it just it was for something that was just so wildly popular you know it just it just sadly just faded away
3: well you know there was always discussion about you know the attraction dating itself much like carousel of progress and the complaints that people have today of the final scene carousel of progress or tomorrowland as a whole. Uh, You know, trying to keep up with what really is futuristic would necessitate upgrading the attraction relatively often. Uh, There was actually discussion, too, about the original attraction going down, replacing uh, that with with a space-themed attraction in that pavilion. Obviously, that never took place. There were rumors for a number of years about... Uh, structural integrity problems, uh, the roof collapsing, a sinkhole developing, nothing was ever confirmed, and you have to think that if they were going to plan to, at one point, uh, gut the attraction or put something else in there, that was not the case. But, um, you know, again, I think, the as much as I like Mission Space, I think this attraction, on so many levels, just exemplified what Future World is and what the theme of Disney is, and just had it, it just hit on every cylinder.
4: Well, see, and that's the irony is when you really stop and look back and you, you, you look at where Epcot original Future World Attractions did, you know, the times caught up with them, look at Look at Horizons. You know, nothing in Horizons really came true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you think of all the things that have been updated and, you know, that got outdated, you know, throughout CommuniCore, how Innoventions is constantly having to be, you know, rethought and reimagined. You know, really... The predictions in horizons we're not even close to yet so in in that regard you know it could have it could have gotten some spit and polish on it and still sustained itself i think it could have it could have lasted i i think it would still be relevant today
3: you know again it could be a sense of nostalgia but watching the videos again and of ride throughs of horizons I was still wowed I was still wowed by what I saw in the desert scene and the space scene and, and and the the entire entire attraction from soup to nuts much much as I think spaceship earth still holds its own very very well even before whatever kind of planned upgrade they're gonna do on it now
4: yeah that's been the that's been the buzz now you know with spaceship earth's uh Siemens uh redoing it and it kind of based on the press material it kind of drifting a little bit away from the communications theme and actually going to a more Horizons theme, even to the point where there's the rumored, I think you mentioned on the last show, uh, the interactive... Um, Touchscreens. Touchscreens, yeah, that are supposedly going to go in, which is you know, clearly right out of Horizons.
3: And, and, a, and, and it's great. Uh, I love them adding to that uh, element. And the rumor now is that you're going to actually be able to make some sort of selection... Um, as the, the vehicle starts to turn and rotate backwards, that's probably where this interactive portion is going to come to be, much like the ending of Horizons, like you said. So uh, it's a shame, again, you know, we didn't even get to, get to talk about some of the music for Horizons. If we can dream it, then we can do it. It's a great song. It's catchy. It, and again, it exemplifies, you know, what Epcot and Disney and, and, you know, believing in ourselves and believing in family, everything is captured in that song. And, and it's funny because in doing my research, I actually found... Uh, one of the original versions that they were going to... It it had a very, very 80s feel to it. I'll I'll see if I can find it and play it for the show, but uh, very, very different type of audio track than what we had, but... uh
0: like time we spend
2: for the whole human race
0: there is time there is space as we reach for new horizons
3: for the whole
0: human race there is time there is space as we reach for Horizon.
3: Again, it's a shame that that horizons went. I, I I am happy that I was able to kind of do this and kind of take this look back because uh, I think we all miss it for a variety of reasons. And, and
4: let me jump in with my you know once again to if if the if the listeners haven't got it now by now, they they but I'll reinforce it even more. Is you know to reinforce my whole geek thing here and and to throw out a shameless plug for twenty seven nineteen hyperionblogspotcom dot uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have a, a series of two so far, but you know, I have a blue sky where I throw out blue sky ideas. And the first blue sky idea I threw out about a month or just two ago was for a new horizons, a totally new horizons theme that would bring back all of the mythology of the Nova City, the Mesa Verde, but taking it to new ride technologies, like using the uh, kind of soaring. Technologies and even bringing in flight simulators, whatever, to create sort of this giant future port pavilion, because I just I really think they could revisit these ideas. I think they could revisit them, and I think they're, you know, granted, you know, we we purists and you know geeks out here are are in a very distinct you know minority of theme park goers when you consider the magnitude of you know people that go every year. I still think it's 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 doable. So, Derek, I'm done with my geekdom.
3: I I, I'm with you all the way. And listen, you know, one is a life. You know, has the death knell maybe sounded for it? So it might be a perfect location for uh, for a new horizons pavilion. Yeah, and and speaking of your blue sky concepts, you have a new one that you just put out that has nothing to do with Epcot, but is very very cool nonetheless. And, and your kind of vision of what Beastly Kingdom should be. I'll put links up to this on the uh, WDW Radio show notes page. Um, so there you go. So I said we could almost talk for an hour. And, and look at that, Jeff. We, we actually almost did. And uh, Wow. Yeah. yeah. Time,
4: time goes by when you're traveling to the future. <laughs> yeah.
3: And when you're geeking out about extinct attractions. But hopefully you guys found this interesting. Hopefully you kind of like taking this little trip back in time with us. Um, I'm going to put some links to some uh, downloads on the WDW Radio show notes page all about Horizons as well as some other pictures and things like that that you can check out. Again, this is part of our continuing series, our celebration of Epcot's 25th and how we want to kind of uh, honor Epcot. We're going to take a look back at some of these other extinct attractions. We're going to look at some of the other pavilions and how they've changed over time. Jeff Pepper, I can't thank you enough for all your help. Um, This was obviously a lot of fun kind of uh, going back and geeking out and get a little nostalgic about an attraction I think so many of us really, really miss.
4: This is always a great time, Lou. Thanks. I always appreciate you having me on.
3: One of the best ways to enjoy a meal at Walt Disney World, and there are so many great ways to do that, is by having a character meal. Whether you are an older couple, a honeymooner's, grandparents, or you're taking your kids, character meals at Walt Disney World are really what make the experience something magical. And there are so many wonderful ones throughout the resort and throughout the parks. But what we want to do this week is talk about the best of the best of character meal experiences outside the parks. We all know about some of the good ones inside the parks. There's the crystal palace there's liberty tree other ones throughout the four theme parks but outside the parks there are some great resort uh, there are some great character dining experiences and i wanted to bring back pam forrester from the magic for less travel to talk about the best of the best character meal outside the parks pam welcome back
5: hi Lou. thanks again for having me on and
3: believe it or not we're talking about food once again
5: uh, that's under hard the, to <laughs> Under
3: the guise of being character meal, we we are we find ourselves talking about food again. But uh, I, I love going to the character meals. I've gone even before I had kids, and now with kids, it, it's such a different experience. And, you know, you, you have a new appreciation for, for going to Disney with, with families. But let's talk about some of the ones outside the parks and what you think really the best is. And maybe we can kind of talk a little about some of the ones that are offered outside the parks, in general, and then we'll, we'll kind of pick the best of all those.
5: Okay, I think you know one of the the first of all, the character meals are a truly unique Disney experience. Not that other people don't have their version of a character meal. I think one of the other parks in Orlando does, but
3: not quite familiar with the, that. Sorry. <laughs>
5: <laughs> but um, this is really, I think, one of those experiences that is really going to enhance your vacation um and talking about the ones that are outside the park i think those have an advantage in some ways because if you arrive um at disney world and you don't necessarily have tickets for that first day this is a way you can kind of get some of that character interaction without even going into the park so it's a good option for people a great way to kick off your vacation or maybe end your vacation um and i think you have a you know a few good choices here um two of my favorites are Chef Mickey's um, for breakfast and Cape May for breakfast as well and there's a reason why I kind of tend to like the breakfast character meals which I'll talk about later but um, I wanted to talk just a tiny bit about the restaurants in particular. Chef Mickey's I mean you meet The mouse there. So he's the big draw, I think. Um, Most kids go to Disney World and they have, you know, one or two characters. They're really amped up about seeing, but the mouse is on everyone's list, I think. And it's at the Contemporary, which is really a unique Disney restaurant. You get to see the monorail going in and out over your head while you're dining and things like that. So I think that's a big plus. And I I just seem to like the breakfast offerings there at Chef Mickey's. Um,
3: The eggs eggs just taste better when Mickey's (laughs) dancing behind you, the monorail's going overhead. I'm with you. I I drink the Kool-Aid. I'm buying into it completely.
5: (laughs) They do. And they have this. This sounds odd, but they have this breakfast pizza that has like peanut butter and chocolate and marshmallows (laughs) on it that my daughter talks about oh it's not your daughter
3: if you eat the pizza that's fine that's okay okay i do like it (laughs) gives you a little burst of of energy in the morning before you head on out
5: That's right. It just, you know, they have some really unique kind of fare. They have all the, you know, the selection of fresh fruits and breakfast meats and breads and all that other stuff, but they have some unique things too. And a lot of things, a lot of times I see um, guests mention the breakfast lasagna, which is, you know, really kind of an interesting concoction of breakfast eggs and. And um, vegetables and cheese and things like that. It just, you know, really has some unique offerings and the atmosphere can't be beat, in my opinion.
3: That's the thing. Between, like I said, there's something about the contemporary from a nostalgic point of view for me. And you have the monorail going through overhead. You know that when you're done with breakfast, you are so close. You can almost see the Magic Kingdom. You know you just hop up the escalator and you're going to be at the Magic Kingdom. Which, you know, that, that level of anticipation even makes the breakfast even better and of course you can get like you said you got the um you know chef mickey chef goopy Go- goopy chef goofy Chippendale. Um, you can right. do the, you can do the whole picture thing at the table and they do lots of fun stuff for kids so um, i'm totally An with African you want, chef right
5: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i agree it's a good thing and um another one of my favorites especially for breakfast well characters are only at breakfast at this um restaurant is Kate may I just have found that they have a really big breakfast selection. Mm -hmm. Um, Just things that you don't find traditionally in the other breakfast um, buffets at the resort. And the characters always seem especially um, interactive there for some reason. I I don't know if that's just been my experience or not, but they really seem to go out of their way. And also, this is another place where the location it's kind of a big plus because you're within walking distance of Epcot Epcot, or you can take the boat or go over things like that. So I think that's another big plus for Cape May um, for breakfast. I agree
3: with you 100%. When we stayed at the boardwalk uh, last year, we ate here a couple times for breakfast. And I like it because, and I think this is true maybe for a lot of the character meals outside the park, not a lot of people either know about it or go to it for, for whatever reason. We went there... It was relatively empty. We had Mickey, Goofy, Chip, and Dale there. And because of that, you talk about the character interaction. They spent so much time at our table, and they were so very hands-on in a good way. You know, there were times that uh, Goofy took my son, put him on his lap. Minnie was helping feed my daughter, gave my wife an opportunity to get up and go to the buffet while (laughs) I sat there with him. But I never saw that. I never saw them get... You know, spend so much time there and hold the kids and hug the kids. And it just, you know, it it was it was wonderful on on so many levels. And the food was great and the food is very good. And you're right. Also, each one of these has kind of a unique, you know, a couple of unique things here and there.
5: I agree. And I think that that is something that, you know, Disney has tried to do a lot of times. Make each restaurant at least have a few things that are very unique to their location um, and one thing I wanted to mention, one of the reasons why I tend to like the character breakfasts more is, I think for the early risers, I would suggest grabbing something quick in the room, being at the park when it opens, and then making your character breakfast reservation for the latest breakfast seating. This would give you a lot of time to be in the parks when the crowds aren't there yet, and then still get to, you know, take your break around 10.30, 11 o'clock, And with the two specifically that we talked about, transportation will not be an issue. Take the monorail or walk to the resort and then enjoy your character meal. And, you know, I think that that's just a great way to kind of start your day at Disney. You get a a big chunk of time in the parks, then go enjoy um, your breakfast that could be lunch too with the characters.
3: I was going to say the same thing, but but kind of opposite time-wise, because I know last time we were there, and this was my little middle secret was we booked the buffet with character over at the crystal palace and we booked a very very early seating time and the reason why i liked it so much was because i have a picture of my wife pushing my kids in my stroller down main street USA, and they're the only people there there was nobody else in the parks and for some reason maybe just geek that i am i just thought it was an incredible picture uh we came out again the parks were pretty empty by the time we left and uh again one of the one of the better breakfast buffets um, in the theme parks. But let's just quickly go over some of the other offerings outside the parks because that's what we were talking about. There are a number of them over at the Grand Floridian. You have Cinderella's Gala Feast at 1900 Park Fair. You have the uh, Ohana Best Friends Breakfast featuring Lilo and Stitch over at the Polynesian. Another one I think that's overlooked, you have the Backyard Barbecue over at uh, Fort Wilderness. Uh, What else am I missing? You have... Oh, the, the 1900 Park Fair Super Califragilistic Breakfast um, again over at the Grand Floridian. And another thing that's really nice that I haven't had a chance to do yet that I want to take my daughter to is the Wonderland Tea Party over at 1900 Park Fair, where you can see Alice and the Mad Hatter, and, and it's supposed to be a lot of fun and really a nice, very intimate, interactive thing with the characters.
5: It really is. Our daughter has done that a couple times when she was younger and really enjoyed it. I guess the Mad Hatter is hysterical. (laughs) He made quite an impression on her because for the rest of the week, she was always coming up with things that the Mad Hatter had done. And they take a little, they take a picture of your kids while you're there. And, you know, she's obviously (laughs) excited out of her mind. So, I mean, you know, it is a great thing. I think a, a great chance for character interaction. Um, And all the ones you mentioned really, especially for the Cinderella's meal at 1900 Park Fair, because um, that's an opportunity for people who have to see the princess, but were not able to get (laughs) one of the storybook one, the storybook um, reservation or reservation in the castle for one of the meals with the princess. They're still able to get some princess time. At 1900 Park Fair, so um, all great choices. And
3: I think the real ultimate character dining, character experience or dining experience, really most short just for girls, is the My Disney Girl Perfectly Princess Tea Party, which I am so desperately going to try and keep my wife and daughter from hearing about (laughs) because it runs $225 for one child and one adult. But it is a mother-daughter tea. It's over at the Grand Floridian. It's hosted by Rose Petal and Aurora. And they create these, you know, incredible princess moments and princess memories. And there's food, but they give you, you know, the, the Maya Disney Girl doll. They give you some jewelry and tiaras and things like that. Um, from people that I know that have done it, they say the $225 is worth it. Obviously, again, not something that the whole family can do. But if you really want that incredibly special moment, mother-daughter moment. I guess fathers and daughters could probably go too if you you wanted to. But, um, you know, that's probably the ultimate. But for for everybody else, I, I agree with you that the two of the very best character meal experiences outside the parks are Chef Mickey's over at the Contemporary Resort and the Cape May Breakfast over at Beach Club Resort. So once again... Pam Foster, I want to thank you for coming on talking, again, about food and some of the great experiences you and your family could have at some of the different character meals. Uh, we'll put some links up over at the WDW Radio Show website to some of these things where you can get some more information. And if you want to contact Pam or her team about booking your Disney World vacation, they'll be able to help you with any of these kind of experiences as well as help you with their daily discount checking services and everything else they have to offer. Pam, I really appreciate you coming on once again, taking your time to help talk uh, about some food and about some great experiences at the parks.
5: Thanks so much again, Lou.
3: I want to thank you all for your emails and voicemails, for interacting and being part of the show. We've got a lot to get to this week, so let's go ahead and get right into it. The first email says, Hey Lou, this is Nick Straka, Nick's 10 on the DWT boards. First off, I'd like to say congratulations on the new show. I know that in Walt Disney World Trivia Book Volume 1, it says that Spaceship Earth is the most popular attraction in all of Walt Disney World. I wonder if you have any stats you can share on other amount of riders per year and what some of the other most ridden attractions are from the other parks and how many riders they have exactly. Thanks, keep up the excellent work and I look forward to listening to your show on the way down to Walt Disney World when I go in May. Nick, thank you for the email and the compliments on the show. Unfortunately, Disney does not release official statistics as exact numbers uh, of riders of attractions, but some places have taken unofficial censuses, uh, such as the new Zagat's Guide, which came out last week, and they have, for example, a list of their most popular attractions, and this is based not on statistics, not on anything that comes from Disney, or number of riders. These are just reader opinions from about 4,800 people who participated in the online survey. But what I'll do is I'll give you their list of the top 10 most popular rated attractions. And it starts with Soarin' at number one, and Roller Coaster at number two, Tower of Terror, followed by Pirates of the Caribbean, Space Mountain, Test Track, Expedition Everest, Splash Mountain, Haunted Mansion, and Big Thunder Mountain. And they actually go; they list about 20 uh in that complete list so you're saying okay Lou you mentioned the top 10 Spaceship Earth is not on there you're right even though that was the uh the answer to the trivia question in volume one based on the information that I had had and and I'll explain to you too how it makes sense Spaceship Earth is the most popular was at the time the most popular and visited attraction in the parks and it makes sense for a variety of reasons number one when you walk into Epcot Center it's the very first attraction you see. So of course you're gonna go on it, you see this giant golf ball, everybody wants to ride it, and that's the appeal to it, is number two, everybody can ride it. There are no restrictions for height, there are no restrictions for age, for medical condition, there, are, there is no real fear factor to it. So kids can ride it, grandparents ride it. It has something for everybody, and I think that's why it has become, and it probably, it very, may very well still be, the most popular attraction in any of the theme parks. And if you look at some of the other attractions on that Zagat list, there are factors that may preclude some people from riding. Soaring, for example, not all kids can ride it. Some people might have a fear of heights. Tower of Terror, same thing. Space Mountain, Test Track, Expedition Everest. They all have things that could keep some portion of the population from riding it for one reason or another. So I think that's part of the appeal of Spaceship Earth. Our next email says, Lou, boy, do I love the show. I'm going to Walt Disney World three times over the course of this year. First, in May from the 14th through the 17th, August 24th to the 27th, and finally December 1st through the 8th for the holidays. I was wondering if I have any dining suggestions for dining in May, since it seems like a lot of Epcot favorites are closed at that time, and in December, do I have any ideas for me to do any pre-booking, Thanks, and keep those podcasts coming, and that comes from Ed. Ed, my first suggestion is, no matter what you're going to do, make those reservations or ADRs fast. As I mentioned on the last show, uh, many of the signature restaurants do book up very, very quickly, and especially for your August 24th through the 27th trip, you are going to be going during the free dining. First of all, make sure you get the free dining. Number two, make those reservations as quickly as possible, because we have heard reports of many of the most popular restaurants filling up. But what I'm going to do is this. You know, it really depends. It's hard to make recommendations on restaurants because, number one, there are so many good ones out there. And number two, it really depends on a number of factors. You know, what size family do you have? Do you have young kids? Do you want to see characters? Do you not want to see characters? What's your budget, etc. But I'm going to give you a few of my favorites, and I'll break it down. The first is what I call fine dining, um, some of the real nice signature restaurants that I spoke of. I can't recommend enough the California Grill at the top of the Contemporary, the Flying Fish over at the Boardwalk, Artist Point over at Wilderness Lodge, Citrico's at uh, the Grand Floridian, the Portobello Yacht Club in downtown Disney, and of course, Gico over at Animal Kingdom Lodge. Other fun, good table service restaurants. One of my favorites is 50's Primetime Cafe in Disney MGM Studios. It's a great time, great comfort food. Boma over at Animal Kingdom Lodge is also excellent, especially for breakfast. Uh, The Hollywood Brown Derby. Ohana's at the Polynesian. And uh, you want to try something different, go and head on over to Restaurant Marrakesh over in Morocco at World Showcase. Some of my favorite counter service places, maybe I'm not sure if this is what you're looking for, but I'm going to mention them anyway. Pecos Bills and Beaches and Cream, two of the best hamburgers on property. And of course, if you are an ice cream lover or even if you're not, you head on. Make, make sure you make the trip over to Beaches and Cream over at the Yacht and Beach Club because the desserts there are exceptional. And if you really, really want to splurge, you head on over to Victorian Albert's for an exceptional dining experience. And for your snack, be sure to get your popcorn on Main Street USA. The next email reads, Lou, my name is Zach Waltz, and our family hasn't been to Walt Disney World since 2005. Are there any must-dos that weren't there in 2005? I know for sure we're going to do Everest, both new Nemo attractions, and the Monsters, Inc. show. Well, Zach, there are a bunch of other things that you definitely have to go and see. Obviously, you need to go see the updated Pirates of the Caribbean attraction with the new audio-animatronic figures. Wonders of Life, if it is open when you go... Definitely go check it out, experience everything that you can in there because you don't know if and when it may close for good. I don't know when in 2005 you were there, but if you haven't seen Soren over at uh, the Land Pavilion Epcot, you must. It is one of my favorites. It absolutely is exceptional. The Lights, Motors, Action, Stunt Show over at the Disney MGM Studios. If you are a fan of water parks, you can head on over and check out the Crush and Gusser uh, water flumes over at Typhoon Lagoon. And of course... Make sure you keep your eyes open for the Dream Squad as part of the Year of Million Dreams because you may be selected to receive one of those magical dreams. So enjoy your trip when you go and make sure you check out everything that you haven't seen. Stephanie writes and says Hi, Lou. I enjoy listening to your show for all the fun tidbits of information about Disney World. I've been to Walt Disney World a number of times, the first when I was eight, and most recently in 2005 on my magical honeymoon. Epcot has always been my favorite park, even as a kid. I love to wander through World Showcase. And Future World has and had some of my favorite rides, including Horizons, Listen to the Land, and Cranium Command. I was somewhat disappointed on my honeymoon to see that Future World looks tired and dated in many many areas. My husband and I feel like it's neglected and could use some refurbishment. I also think Disney should balance its whiz-bang rides like Test Track and Mission Space with more interesting leisurely rides like Spaceship Earth and Horizons. Sorry, I really, really love that ride. Hopefully then you like the show. Anyway, I was just wondering if you saw this too and what you think Disney might do about it. Thank you for a great show. And that comes from Stephanie Byers from California. Stephanie, thank you for your email. And as they say, timing is everything because uh, hopefully, like I said, you enjoyed our look back at Horizons. Now... As far as your email, there there are a lot of other people who do not like what they perceive to be that move towards thrill rides like Mission Space and Test Track over in Epcot, specifically over in Future World. But these same people also applaud attractions like the new Seeds with Nemo and Friends, although there are some who may not like the character interaction, but that's a whole other story altogether. As you can tell by my look at Horizons that we just did, You can also see that I miss these attractions, and other ones like it. I I think Spaceship Earth is another great example, and you know how I feel about that if you listen to the show. I really enjoyed a lot of these pavilions as they were when they first opened. Uh, But I don't think that you're going to see a continuing trend, and it may just be wishful thinking on my part, towards these thrill-ride-only pavilions and attractions, because I think you really alienate Some sections of the population, like I spoke of before, by age, medical condition, personal fears, etc. It also takes away from that ability that, you know, Walt wanted from the very beginning for families to enjoy all these things together. If you think about it, the attractions that really are and that become, you know, eventually become classics are those that appeal to everyone. And I think that we may start seeing a trend towards that again. Now, from what I understand, there is nothing planned for now as far as new attractions or major refurbishments for Epcot, So we're not going to really see any sort of development anytime soon. Although Wonders of Life really is a big question mark at this point, And I think Journey into Imagination and really the entire pavilion is both underutilized and uh, personally in need of an upgrade. Even you know, half of that pavilion really isn't being used right now as the upstairs stays empty. So I agree with you. I hope we see a trend towards that uh, thing. You know, I don't mind some of the exciting attractions as long as we keep story. But let's go back to what made Epcot uh, so truly magical and, like you, my favorite park when it first opened. Many of you wrote to me and you posted on the forums and called the voicemail all about the Walt Disney World audio-animatronics figure that I spoke about uh, when I did the audio-animatronics segment back with Jeff Pepper. And and the opinions really run the gamut from people thinking that uh, it is is, is a must-do, that he definitely should be in the theme parks, to others thinking that it couldn't be done really perfectly and given the proper respect and that it shouldn't be done at all. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post a link on the WDW radio site to the thread on the D- Disney World Trivia Forums all about this so you can really see some of the posts as well as weigh in on your own. What I want to do now, play some of your voicemails. A number of you called in with your opinions. I'm going to go ahead and play those
2: now. Hi, Lou. This is Darlene B. from Colorado. And I was just listening to your uh, your podcast that you just did on... Um, April 22nd, talking about the Walt Disney Audio Animatronic, and I just thought that would be such a great idea. I mean, they have the president, they have, um, you know, the American Adventure, they have Mark Twain and Ben Franklin, but another sort of show like that showcasing, like, the great Americans in history, the the influential people, you know, such as Love Disney or Martin Luther King Jr. and, you know, uh, just other people like that would be wonderful. I mean, kids who are already getting history lessons with uh, the American Adventure and the Hall of Presidents would be able to see what these people did to make our country great. So I am completely on board for that. And whenever my little girl sees pictures of Walt Disney she knows exactly who that man is and would be thrilled to be able to actually see an audio animatronic of him she knows he's passed away and he was a great man but how great would that be Um, but anyway yeah I'm totally on board with uh, all the great Americans influential Americans great history Um, great idea so you have my thumbs up for that great show um weather here in Colorado's not so great hope it's better in new jersey talk to you soon bye
6: hello lou this is tim in Lawrenceville again i was getting ready to dial the number to leave a comment about the show and much to my surprise i heard my fumbling bumbling comment that i had left from last week which was quite hilarious uh No, I'm not in the oratory business, thankfully. I don't usually address the public, but uh, I I cracked up. I cracked myself up. Uh, What was I calling? Oh, I know. I think it would be extremely awesome if they did a Walt Disney animatronic. Uh, I'm sure that's pretty much a sacred cow would be for a lot of people, but it might give... uh, people who never saw him live or anything might give him a chance to experience his his charm and his, uh, his persona. Uh, It might be really cool. It might be really scary. I don't know. It probably would be for a lot of people, but hey, I don't want to use up all the tape, but uh, thanks for putting me on the air. That's funny. And, uh, I do, again, appreciate your good work. And, uh just talk to
3: you later thanks bye the next email comes from ann fowler who says i love your podcast and it's the first one i listen to each week i'm going to be in walt disney world june 1st through the 4th for the first star wars weekend and end of flower and garden festival we're staying at all-star sports my boyfriend's a huge star wars fan and this trip is a birthday gift to him how cool is that i noticed that gay days is going on that weekend is this going to affect the crowds and being able to get everything done? Thanks, Anne Fowler. and thank you. Have a great time on your trip. It is a wonderful, wonderful time of year to go as long as you can stand the heat and the crowds. But I don't think, speaking of crowds, that they are going to be affected really any more so than the normal summer crowds. Um, according to Uber crowd guy Len Testa over at touringplans.com, I checked his site and the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, for Gay Days, they rank about a 7, and a 7 out of 10, 10 being the most crowded on the chart. The parks to go to, according to him, Friday would be the Magic Kingdom, Saturday would be Epcot, and Sunday the 7th would be, I'm sorry, Sunday the 3rd would be the Disney MGM Studios. Again, if you go to touringplans.com, you can get a look at that crowd calendar and really get an idea of the parks to go to and the parks to avoid when you go. And if you look real closely, the crowds during those gay days during that weekend are actually lower than the week before and especially than the week after when the crowds are up to about a nine. So, again, it is a great time of year to go. Our final email this week comes from Rob White who says, What are your opinions of the old Magic Kingdom Skyway and why was it removed? It was such a neat attraction to ride during the fireworks. Rob, Rob, thank you for the email and your question. I agree with you about the Magic Kingdom Skyway. It was a great attraction and it was sad to see it go. Let me tell you a little bit about the attraction itself and then we'll talk about why it probably was removed. This was one of Walt Disney World and the Magic Kingdom's original attraction. It basically was a five-minute long, it was a cable car style ride and it ran between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. It passed right over Cinderella's Golden Carousel, made a 90-degree right turn, which was very unique, And past the Grand Prix Raceway until it got to the Skyway Station in Tomorrowland. In fact, it was actually listed twice on the park guide map. It was listed once as a Skyway to Tomorrowland and again as a Skyway to Fantasyland from the Tomorrowland Terminal. The Tomorrowland side was located right near Space Mountain. Uh, If you look and see, there's a big building there with a waterfall that still sits there. Unfortunately, empty to this day. That was a loading area there. In Fantasyland, it was that Swiss-style chalet building that sits right near the entrance to Liberty Square and near um, It's a Small World. It's currently, unfortunately, just used for stroller parking and there are some character meet-and-greets. Uh, the ride was open year-round. Uh, it ran only until dusk, and they would close it, obviously, temporarily during rainstorms and, and things like that. It was actually a deed-ticket attraction, and like I said, one of the real notable things about it was that 90-degree turn that it took right near the Grand Prix Raceway. Unfortunately, it closed on November 10th, 1999, and it joined its Disneyland counterpart, which closed exactly five years to the day earlier. Okay, so it begs the question, why exactly did it close? Now, there were a number of rumors that still persist to this day that it closed for safety reasons. Um, there has been stories of guests falling from the ride car, etc. That's not true. It really closed for for more practical reasons. Number one, it was very, very slow loading. Um, It was very, very difficult to get guests in and on there. It would not accommodate guests with disabilities. You couldn't get on there uh, with a wheelchair unless you could actually get out from your chair and into the the vehicle. Then, of course, you had the issue of getting your wheelchair on the other side. Now, it should be noted that the reports of a guest losing their life on the on the attraction are not necessarily true. However, unfortunately, somebody did die on the ride. It wasn't a guest, but instead, in February of 1999, an outside contractor who was working on the ride but was not wearing his uh, protective gear or safety harness, did fall to his death, but again, that was not really one of the compelling reasons that the attraction was closed. If you kind of walk through Fantasyland towards Tomorrowland, you still can see areas where the old giant pylon stood. I'll try and post some photos up in the WDW radio show notes so you can take a look and see exactly what the buckets and the old attraction looked like. That's all the time I have this week to answer your emails and voicemails. Thank you again for sending them in. I promise to get to everything else I still have yet to go. And please feel free to email me anytime at lou at wdwradio.com. Call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. With your questions, with your comments, suggestions, anything you may want to weigh in on, I'll definitely either answer them via email or play them and answer them on the show. Thanks for tuning in once again to the WDW Radio Show. That's all the time we have this week. I had a great time this week. Hope you did too. I want to thank my special guests. Jeff Pepper, be sure to visit his blog at 2719hyperion.blogspot.com and Pam Forrester from The Magic for Less Travel. You can visit their site by clicking on the link over at wdwradio.com. Of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for your time and everybody who has written in, called in and posted on the forums in support of the show. Don't forget you can still come aboard and cruise with me and Margaret tinkerbell Carey on the Disney Magic from November 3rd through the 10th, 2007. Staterooms really are booking up fast. We have about 200 people coming aboard. We have uh, some amazing things planned along with Disney as well as special events on the ship at Castaway Key exclusive to the group. There's gonna be surprises in your stateroom, contests, things for kids, lots of games, lots of trivia, and so much more, including the chance to win a $500 Disney gift card at the beginning of your trip for anybody that books by June 1st. Remember, staterooms are limited. They do start as low as $1,043 per person double occupancy. For more information, you can visit wdwradio.com, click on the cruise link, you can go there for a free, no obligation quote. Hope to see you on board. On upcoming shows, I have more interviews and special guests, as well as trivia, news, and vacation planning advice. I'm also about to reveal the next of the seven wonders of Walt Disney World, but I want to still invite you to let me know what you think belongs on the list by email Vo- voicemail or posting in the seven wonders for- forum i'm going to put a link to that in this week's show notes also i have another contest coming up more best of the best and so much more if you have an idea for the show or want to hear from a certain guest let me know and don't forget to visit other friends of the show including other podcasts websites and blogs i'm going to put links to some of those on this week's show no- notes page you can get to that right from wdwradio.com Don't forget, on the show notes, we also have more information, lots of pictures, images, links to other articles and sites about some of the topics we discussed on this week's show. So be sure to head on over there and check it out. As I always say, remember that the show is meant to be interactive, so I want to hear from you. Email me your questions, comments, or ideas to lou at wdwradio.com. Call the voicemail anytime. I love hearing from you at 206-202-4WDW. Of course, please come by the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com to talk with other listeners and readers about the show. It's fun. It's free. I'd love you to come by and be a member of what we all consider to be the happiest forums on Earth. Thank you all again for tuning in, as well as your kind reviews on iTunes. I really do appreciate They do help out very much. Also, don't forget to click the Dig button for each week's show. You can find that in the show notes. And of course, please help spread the word to your family and friends as well as on other communities. Thanks again. Have a great week. And of course, see ya!